Well, you can turn over to Second Peter, all the way in the back of your Bible, almost right before First John, right after First Peter. Come on, wake up out there. Second Peter. Today we want to look at the modus operandi of false teachers. That's kind of a fancy way of saying method of operation. And uh, we had the pleasure of having Justin Peters here a couple months ago last fall. And if you haven't heard him and his teachings, you can go on our website and you can go back in time and find those. And he does an excellent expose on a lot of the false and heretical teaching that's going on today in in the church. And uh, I would encourage you to listen to that. But we're going to look at what Peter has to say here in 2 Peter chapter 2. And uh, I want to start off with just a little story or illustration, if you will. No one ever really expected this to happen, especially with a model congregation. They provided for the community a heated swimming pool for underprivileged kids. They provided horses for inner city kids to ride. They even gave scholarships for discerning or for deserving students, and they provided housing for senior citizens. They also had an animal shelter. They had a medical facility. They even had an outpatient care facility for those in need. And eventually they had a whole drug and alcohol rehabilitation program on their campus. A politician of the day, Walter Mondale, wrote that the pastor of this church was an inspiration to us all. The Secretary of Health at the time, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, cited the pastor's outstanding contributions. Here's what he said. He knew how to inspire hope. He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a job placement center. He opened rest homes and homes for the retarded He had a health clinic. He organized a vocational training center. He provided free legal aid. He even founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons, do miracles, and heal people. I mean, when you stop and think about it, those are lofty words. You might say a a lengthy resume for what appeared on the outside to be a mighty spiritual leader and his congregation, his church. You might ask, where's that congregation today? What are they doing today? Unfortunately, the church is dead. Not spiritually, literally. That church is dead physically. Death occurred the day the pastor called the members to the pavilion. They heard his hypnotic voice over the speaker system. And from all the corners of their farmland which they gathered, they came. And he sat in his large chair and he spoke into this handheld microphone about the beauty of death and the certainty that they would meet again. The people were all surrounded by armed guards. The vat of cyanide-laced Kool-Aid was brought out. Most of the members drank the poison with no resistance whatsoever. 
Those who did resist were forced to drink. First the babies, then the children. About 80 in number were given this fatal drink. Then the adults, the women and the men, the leaders and the followers, and finally the pastor. Everything was calm for a few moments. Then the convulsions began and the screams filled the air. Mass confusion broke out. And in a few minutes, it was all over. It ended. The members of the People's Temple Christian Church were all dead, committing mass suicide. 780 of them in all, 80 of them children, as well as their leader, Jim Jones. Beloved, the subject matter that we're about to talk about today is very serious. Mark it down. We need to be on guard, especially in the society in which we live, because there's religious hucksters out there that not only are out there, but they inhabit God's house. I don't want you to be fooled by their looks or, their daz- or dazzled by their words. I want you to hear first and foremost that they're phonies and they're poisonous. And beloved, that's as true as it was in 1978 with Jonestown as it was in the first century with the Apostle Peter as he wrote this letter. Peter devoted more than a chapter to this problem of false heretical teachings and teachers because within three decades... After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the earth was being rocked and filled with false teachers. And Peter wrote this portion of this second letter, 2 Peter, he wrote specifically to make aware his readers of their adversaries, of those who would harm them. He wrote this section of Scripture to disarm them and to alert his Christian brothers and sisters of their presence, even within their own ranks. So I want to talk to you today about the MO of false teachers, how they operate. We're going to get to the first three verses today of our text. But follow along in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2. I want to read this portion of Scripture for us, and then we'll delve into it and, and look at it in a more thorough way. Following along, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You know, there's nothing more offensive to God than someone in the name of God who distorts His Word. That's highly offensive to Him. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 to 19, we read these words, I warn everyone who hears the prophecies, the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share 
in the tree of life, and in the holy city, which are described in this book. See, to falsify facts about God and about who he is and about how he works, even to the point of promoting the enemies, promoting Satan's lies, is the sickest form, you might say, of hypocrisy. When you stop and think, you have all eternity at stake. It's hard to believe that anyone would intentionally deceive other people, teaching them something that is spiritually incapable of saving their soul, only to fleece their own pockets with their money. And yet, it was not only around in Peter's day, but it's around in our day as well. John eight forty four. Satan is called the father of lies. It says, you are, Jesus is addressing false teachers of his his day, and he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Jesus had to say in John 8, 44 about our enemy. And when someone claims to teach the truth, and they disguise themselves, as 2 Corinthians tells us, as angels of light, and they attempt to creep into the body of Christ unnoticed, so that they can share their demonic teachings amongst the brothers and sisters, we have to be on guard about that. We have to be on alert about that. God takes this very seriously. Back in the Old Testament, it seems like he even took it more seriously in a way. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and in in chapter 18 about someone who is teaching falsely in God's name. Just listen to this. This is in Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, now he's speaking of the Israelite people there, and gives you a sign or a wonder, listen to this, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, Or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and shall keep all his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. This is how serious God takes this. Because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. God takes that very seriously. But you notice there that it says... If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or a wonder comes true, that does not authenticate their message. 
See, today we live in an age where, well, boy, this, this guy has supernatural healing abilities. Or this, this gal said this about something that was going to happen, and it actually happened. Doesn't that make her a prophet? Doesn't that make her legit? No, it doesn't. Don't you think Satan can go out there and emulate anything he wants to? Remember the magicians in the Old Testament with Moses? I mean, they were to emulate exactly what Moses was doing. Don't be so quick to put a stamp of approval on someone who looks like they have some miraculous power. Throughout the New Testament, we're told over and over by Christ and by the apostles to be careful about false teachings, to be careful about false teachers, and to be careful about their deceptions. One such place is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. See, you're not going to look at a false teacher and go, oh, that's a false teacher. You're going to be deceived because they look just like an apostle of Christ. It goes on, it says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Don't think for one moment that Satan's out there with a, a, you know, a tail and a pitchfork and horns going, hey, come and sin with me. That's not what he's doing. He's an angel of light. See, that's why sin is so tempting. Because it's disguised. Its effects are disguised. The circumstances, the the repercussions of sin are always disguised. You never see the end of that pleasure of sin, just for a moment. How that will ultimately affect and discredit your own walk with the Lord, your own testimony. But also how that will just like a, throw a pebble in a pond and the little ripples go out. That's what sin does. It doesn't just affect the person who sins. So it says, he's an angel of light, disguising himself as an angel of light. And it also says, so it is of no surprise of his servants also disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Over and over in the New Testament, we're seeing the importance, we're being warned of the importance of being armed with the truth. Ephesians chapter 6. Take up the whole armor of God. And we have to understand what it means to be discerning when it comes to teachings. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, The apostle writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes this, As we have said before, and so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received from us, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. That's very serious. And over in Philippians, the Apostle Paul, chapter 3, verse 2, even refers to these false teachers as dogs and evildoers. He's not 
Paul wasn't one to be real politically correct, you might say. He just kind of blunts, bluntly says it. He calls it for what it is. I think we need to understand to do that today. The verdict from both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God does not tolerate false prophets. Oh, he may for a time, but they will ultimately meet their end. And I think the ironic thing about it is today the church as a whole almost does just the opposite. It seems like most churches will tolerate any teacher that comes along that says, Oh, I'm a Christian and I wrote a book. Regardless of what they say, regardless of the content of their teaching. That's why we got people all over the map when it comes to the church. Because they don't know what they believe. They don't know what to believe. Because rather than reading the book, the Bible, and getting their nose in there and understanding what the attributes and the character of God is and understanding the plan of salvation that God has already laid out, They want some shortcut, so they go to a Christian bookstore and they find the best-selling Christian book, which sometimes is good, most times is probably not. Because those people basically are in, for one thing, the money. Now, obviously, there are good books out there, don't get me wrong. But a lot of the stuff that you find on Christian bookstores today, the generic Christian bookstore that you go into, it's just full of garbage. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be of sober mind, be watchful. He warns us. Your adversary, the devil, what's he doing? He's prowling around like a roaring lion who's got an appetite and he's seeking somebody to devour. That's our enemy. That's Satan. He's not sitting back just relaxing, saying, oh, well, you know, I'll just let him do this. No, he's not. It says he's prowling around. He's got a purpose in mind. To cause Christians and non-Christians to fall. Does whatever he can do to dishonor Christ. And when we think of that, and we've heard that verse probably, if we've grown up in the church, you know, that the, the, uh, the enemy, the roaring lion, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We understand that. But we forget that when it says he prowls around, we think somehow magically he stops at the doors of the church. <laughs> Like, oh, I'm not allowed in there. I had an individual come by a week or so ago to look at one of my keyboards. And uh, him and his wife came by, real nice people, but obviously not church people. And I said, uh, yeah, the, the keyboard's in here. I'll show it to you. And they kind of looked at me, and they looked at the doors of the church, which were open. They said, this is a church, right? I said, yeah, come on in. And they were kind of like, well, can we come in here? (laughs) They were from Marin, and they just, you know, very, yeah, that explains it, right? Nice people, (laughs) nice people, very nice people. But they were asking, okay, you're you're okay with us coming in? Yeah, come on in, you know. I had to tell them, it's a building. This is a building. This is not a holy place. And we came up here, and I had the keyboard sitting up here, and, is that the altar? No, we don't have an altar. Christ died once for all. We don't need an altar here. We don't sacrifice anything here. We remember the, the sacrifice of our Savior. And so when we gather here as we believers, we, we worship Him. And uh, a little time to share with them. But it was interesting, their mindset. See, sometimes we think somehow that the four walls of the church are immune to the roaming 
of our enemy, the, the devil, Satan. And that's just not the case. That's just not the case. And so, when it comes to this kind of, of subject matter, it's not just for people outside here. It's more for us, and that's what Peter is writing to. Remember, he's writing to believers here. He's telling them there's going to be teachers that come along that look just like us. They look just like the apostles of Christ. And yet, you better be careful what they teach. You better watch out. Because Satan uses an M.O., that is very fruitful. I mean, we all understand that he's busy outside the church. You know, you have all kinds of world religions. You have the Muslim, you have the Buddhism, you have you know, all this stuff, you know, that goes on. And we'd all say, oh yeah, that's not of God. You know, we, we understand that. Because it offers an alternative way to salvation. And the Bible says that Jesus, at least the, 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 the Bible that I read says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So whenever you come across a religion that says, well, here's how we believe you gain favor with God. you got to come to church every week, and you got to pray, and you got to give money to the church. And, and if you do enough of that, eventually God will like you enough, and somehow you'll be in heaven one day. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's not true. We're not saved by our works, are we? We're saved by faith, by grace, through faith. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Our salvation is something that God grants us. And we should be thankful every day for it. We don't have to work for it. It's just not what the Bible says. But when you say things like that, boy, people get their hair up on the back of their head. Are you saying that every other religion is wrong? Well, I'm not saying it. That's what Jesus said. That's what God says throughout the Bible. He doesn't give you a a buffet of things to choose from. He says, no, here's what you believe. Here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to do. Here's here's the way of salvation. I've, I've given you everything I can give you. I've given you my son, my only son. He came. He was a perfect. He lived a perfect life for 33 some years. And then he was executed. He was put on a cross. Even though he didn't do anything wrong. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was sinless. And yet he took upon himself the sins of all those who would ever believe in his name. And he paid for their sins. Well, Satan hears that and he just goes bonkers. He gets busy coming up with other ways that you can be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul kind of pulls the, the veil back on sin. And he kind of, in that, in that verse, that chapter there, he kind of says, you know what? Sin never approaches us as sin. Satan never comes at us as Satan. Sin always comes to us as what? Pleasure. Well, this would be fun. And Satan comes at us What? In the name of Christ. In the name of God. Erroneous teaching doesn't come to us as erroneous teaching. I've never heard a false teacher get up and say, now I want to teach you some error. Are you ready? Get ready? Write this down. I'm going to teach you some erroneous teaching. They don't do that. Error always comes to us as truth, but it isn't. 
But see, he's, Satan is always using these, you might say, internal tactics, seeking to destroy God's people from within. Jesus, even in, in Matthew 7, verse 15, talks of his servants and says they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They do their best to infect the flock with the doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. And because all this false teaching comes in so many subtle terms and forms, if you're undiscerning in your faith, you can be deceived just like that. You can get into a situation where you're unable to distinguish error from truth. And that's why it's so, so important that when we come to the Word of God, we understand what it says and what it means. We have to understand those kind of things. Erroneous teaching is never to be tolerated. The power behind a lot of these false teachers with their wonderful personalities and their eloquent words, is Satan himself. And we need to be reminded of that. And so here in chapter 2, Peter gives us a clear portrait, you might say, of false teachers. And the first thing we see here is the sphere of their operation. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, but false teachers also rose up among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. Now remember what we talked about last week. We talked about in chapter 1 of of 1 Peter, toward the end there, he talked about the sure word of God. He talked about the idea that the word of God doesn't come from somebody's fanciful thinking. It comes from the heart of God. It comes from the mind of God through his apostles. And they recorded it as such. And so you see there the first word in that, in that verse, but. Remember, the verses and the divisions and all that are not inspired. Okay? They just put that there in the English so that we can better find our way around the Bible. It's not like when God, when the, the apostles of, of Christ were writing these words down, they wrote, okay, verse uh, 21, and then, no, that wasn't even there. Just a bunch of words on a page. Letters on a page in the original language. And so some, some scholars say, you know what, there shouldn't even be a chapter division here because it's almost dividing in the middle of the sentence. Read with me uh, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, In other words, it came from God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So he's using that that word, but there, kind of as a transition, saying, hey, here's the real deal. Here is what's false. He says, no prophecy ever came from an act of human will. It was supernaturally given to the writers. But he says, on the other hand, 
just as God had his apostles and his writers and his prophets, Satan has his. That's his whole point. Satan has always had men. He's always had followers. He's always had a prophet or a teacher or an apostle. And we forget that sometimes. That there's an army that we're fighting against, a supernatural army, an army of deception. And as servants of the deceiver, those false prophets basically put out lies and they put out falsehoods. And they do it very systematically. They don't do it bluntly. That's why you can't, a lot of times, listen to some of these guys on, on the TV. You know, you listen to them, and you, know, you, you can listen to maybe a half-hour program and say, you know, that was very inspiring. But you want, to, you want to do something? Get their transcript and start reading through it without all the lights and without all the smoke and mirrors and without his voice inflections. Just read what they're saying, and you'll see the error. It just stands out if you're biblically discerning. But see, our, they know how to communicate. That's why they have all this stuff going on. Why do you think on a lot of those programs, what do they have running across the screen, screen at the bottom? They have little commercials constantly. Joe Olstein, he'll be in Oakland. Come celebrate, you know. Da, 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 da. So-and-so will be here. So-and-so will be there. Don't forget, you know. They, they run all that stuff because they know how the mind works. And it's very commercialized. And so he says here, you know what, there's going to be, as opposed to God's truth, there's going to be false prophets also. And he says here, they arose among the people. Well, who are the people he's talking about? Clearly, it's the nation of Israel. It's Israeli people. Over and over in the the New Testament, you can see where God calls Israel the people. Uh, For example, in Luke 2.32 He says this, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Or in Acts 26, 17, he says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, referring to Israel. Acts 26, 23, that the Christ might suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and who? Gentiles. See, the, our people, my people, always referred to Israel, even in the New Testament. And so false prophets were a serious problem even for them back then. In Matthew seven, seventeen, he says, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. When you stop and think about it, the whole religious establishment of Jesus' day was corrupt. It was filled with false teachers. Pharisees, the Sadducees, heresies, they were all false teachers. And Christ basically, throughout the Gospels, I just want you to listen as I read kind of a a section of different parts of the Gospels. And here's here's Jesus' take on the teachers of his day. Here's what he would say to them. And probably say to the false teachers of today if if he was here physically to say it. But here's what he said to them. He says, but the Lord said to him, this is in Luke 11 and Matthew 23. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter. But inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? 
But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I would tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hinder those who were entering." See, Jesus spoke very boldly out against any kind of heretical false teaching. And so that's important for us to say. See here, but but false prophets also among us, just as it says there will be false teachers among you, among the church. Not outside the church, among the church. They've worked their way in. Years before Jesus had predicted in the last days the church would basically have to endure a lot of heretical teaching. Matthew 24, he says, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying what? I am the Christ. I am the Christ. And you know what? They're going to mislead many, it says. Paul warned Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Preach the word. Preach the word. Don't preach about your dreams. Don't preach about your visions. Don't tell me you went to heaven and came back. I don't want to hear that. He says, preach the word. For the time will come when, you, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. If that's not the day we live in today, beloved, I don't know what is. I don't know how many times I've talked to a brother or sister in Christ that says, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I watch Joe Olstein. He makes me feel good. I say he's a false teacher. He doesn't know the way of salvation. He talks about Christ. I don't care if he talks about Christ. He can talk about Christ till he's blue in the face. When you look at what that man believes, he does not believe what Christ says in the Bible. Well, He's so cute. You know, he tells a little joke. See, what are they doing? They want their ears tickled. 
See, they want their ears tickled. It says there in Timothy, preach the word, because there's going to come a time when people will not endure sound doctrine. I don't know how many pastors I've talked to that they say, well, what what are you teaching in your church? And when we were in the Gospel of Matthew, my answer was, well, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, a couple of the pastors, well, you said that three years ago. I said, well, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just going through it verse by verse, line by line, and we're not through the guts of a big book, okay? Well, I went through the Gospel of Matthew. I know I did it in a year. I said, well, that's okay, but I just do things a little different. He said, well, our people could never, they don't have the patience for that. And I think, well, patience with what? I mean, where are you going? You know, I mean, what's the big hurry here? Why do we have to get through this book so fast? I mean, why not go through it in an understanding way? And maybe it's just because I'm slow. I have to take my time with it. I don't know. Maybe everybody else is light years ahead of me. But it takes me a while to really understand what the Lord is saying. And so we take our time. And we, you know, and I'm not saying a long sermon is a good sermon. Don't get me wrong. And, and I understand sometimes, you know, we run over and that kind of thing. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we have to be patient with the teaching of God's word. We don't want to be like these people that won't endure sound doctrine. I mean, there's some churches today, beloved, they don't even talk about doctrine. Well, that's boring. That's, that's old school. You know, that's, people don't want to hear that. Well, yeah, they don't want to, but they need to. Okay, we're not here to do what people want. Sometimes I wish we were, it'd be a little easier, but we don't operate that way. So false teachers arise, beloved, when the church begins to embrace the worldly culture around it. When they begin to look outside and say, how can we make them feel more comfortable in here? That's our goal. We don't want them to feel awkward when they come and visit us if they're not a Christian. And so if we stand up and we preach from the Bible and they never read the Bible, they may feel a little out of place. That's okay. God can use that. When you present the truth of the word of God, it doesn't return void. These aren't my words. These are God's words. And so when people try to do that, they congregations begin to no longer desire to endure, to hold on to healthy, sound doctrine and that soon as that happens man i guarantee you're going down the wrong the wrong path god-centered worship today and preaching is replaced by man-centered antics and and by entertainment you go to most churches and you have all these light shows and fogs coming across this you know and the pastor comes out of the hole or whatever and you know just nuts i mean it's a neat show i'm into technology i kind of like that stuff but i'm thinking I don't think it has a place necessarily in the church, okay? Save that for the Grammy Awards or something like that. That's fine. But, but I, think, I think God is, uh, grows a little tired of that kind of stuff. I think our focus should be on a holy God who loves us and gave everything he had for us so that we could come to know him better. So when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're here to learn to grow in our relationship with him. We need to hear a biblical emphasis on sin, on repentance, on holiness. We don't need to hear self-esteem and felt needs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We need to make sure that we're setting a guard at the door. 
So he says here basically that you better watch out because they're going to be invading your area. But he also says here, he talks about the stealthiness of their operations. They don't do it boldly. They don't come in and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. Can I teach in your church? No. Look at what it says. Who will secretly introduce, who secretly bring in destructive heresies. They'll do it secretly. False, false teachers are never straightforward and honest about their operations. Because if they were, the church wouldn't embrace them. I mean, do you understand that? If their schemes are unmasked, then nobody's going to want anything to do with them. I say that almost hesitantly because when you stop and you think of some of the, the Word of Faith teachers and some of the stuff that the antics that they have gone through year after year. And you know what? Probably to the dismay of the church, it's not the church exposing them. It's 2020. It's 60 minutes. Oh, yeah, you know, you send your envelopes to Benny Hinn, great. Fill with your check and your little prayer, prayer need. You know what happens? The prayer needs go in the trash and the check goes in his bank. It's all revealed right there by the world, not even by the church. And yet people still, still embrace individuals like this. Almost to the point where they don't need any stealthy operation. They don't need any stealthiness in their operation anymore. They can just do it bluntly. It says they secretly and deceptively enter the church, posing as pastors or teachers or evangelists. Jude 4 says that certain persons have crept in unnoticed. I remember one time I was over here and we were doing some music or something, and I had the grandkids here, and they were just kind of running around the church a little bit and they were, when they were smaller. And uh, I looked up, and I think I saw Sophia and Mason, and I didn't see Gabby. And I'm thinking, you know, guys, where's, where's Gabby? Where? And I was kind of panicking. And all of a sudden, I looked down, and she's, she's crawling under the seat since her little head pops out here. I'm right here, Grandpa. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the vision that I have of people creeping into the church. It's like, okay, they don't want to be seen. You know, they don't want anybody to know what, what their, their, their heresies are. It means they're that word to creep in. It means to slip in without being seen, to sneak in under false pretenses. See, that's why a lot of times when you come to our church and, you know, certain individuals have, have come to our church maybe a week or two and say, well, how do I become a member? Say, well, you don't right away. That's not how it works here. We want to get to know you. You want to get to know us. And after a period of time, say four or six months, we see, see you in, in this environment, see how you serve the body of Christ, whatever. Then, you know, there's a membership class you go through. So that you understand what we believe and we understand what you believe. And then we put your name before the, the, the body of Christ. And we're getting ready to do that in a couple of weeks with, with some individuals who've gone through the membership class. And then we welcome them into the fellowship. But see, you don't show up here Sunday and next Sunday you're sitting on the board of elders or whatever. It just doesn't work that way. You know, and the reason is just because you have to be careful when you're, you're concerned with the flock of God. It says they want to introduce their destructive heresies or heresies of destruction. That word means utter ruin. 
It speaks of a final and eternal condemnation of the wicked. So what they teach is very seriously wrong. The term indicates that the antics of these men will have disastrous eternal consequences for both them and their followers. That's why sometimes when you know, we'll see somebody sharing a book or pushing a book or whatever, you know, hey, you know, I got this book, you know. It's like, hey, let's check that book out. You know, it's so important. I was so blessed. My, my son-in-law and daughter, you know, they, they received a book in their church and they had the, the wisdom to check it out first. And they said, you know, we don't think this is a very good book. And it wasn't. But see, those kind of things aren't in your face. They're always kind of under this deceptive kind of a, a deal here. And the Greek word there has the, the idea that, you know, eventually they will be totally damned as a result of this. And he's playing this in contrary to the gospel, the true gospel. He's saying, you know what, their deceptive heresies damn people. The gospel of Christ saves people. I mean, that's how different they are. And yet, they're so deceptive, people fall right into march after them. The word heresies there denotes an opinion. Especially, it says, a self-willed opinion. Vine says, which is substantiated for submission to the power of truth and leads to division and the formation of sex. So it has the idea that everybody's coming up with their own little form of truth. Follow me, follow me. And Peter indicated here that these false teachers had exchanged the truth of God's word for their own self-styled opinions. Be very careful, beloved, when you hear someone say, you know what, thus saith the Lord. I was out in my prayer time the other day and God spoke to my heart. Bless him. And, you know, and they go on and they tell this fanciful story about how God revealed to them some new truth or something like that. I don't know about you, but if it's not in the pages of this book, the covers of this book, I don't want to hear it. I don't care what it is. Because it's so important that we guard against any kind of fanciful stories or dreams or visions or all kind of things like that. That people are saying they've received new revelation today. We believe here and we teach here that the revelation of God is closed. The canon is closed. We know that God has clearly spoken, as Hebrews says, to us in a variety of ways in the past. But now, it says in Hebrews 1, long time, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers of the prophets. But, verse 2, in these days, these last days, he has spoken past tense to us by his Son. It's done. There's no new revelation going on. It's a pseudo-Christian knockoff if, if they think it's anything. So we have to be careful. We have to be wise. Well, then there's also here the sin of operation. Look at what it says here, continuing in verse 1. It says, the destructive heresies, even denying the Master, the Lord, who bought them. Even denying the, the Master, the Lord, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Well, what's this about? 
uh, it's very important to understand that, that word uh, even there, even denying. It underscores the, the idea that this is unthinkable. This is an unthinkable thing that, that someone would do as a, as a false teacher. Their arrogance, their pride. They even deny the master. That word deny is to refuse, to be unwilling, to firmly say, no, absolutely not. I'm not yielding. The same verb appears in uh, Hebrews 11.24 describing Moses' refusal to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And here in this passage, Peter uses this present tense participle to denote this habitual pattern of refusal. It's not just a one-time refusal. This is a continuing refusal by any false teacher that they characteristically basically will reject divine authority. They declare themselves the authority. How many times have you heard of false teachers when they're being criticized say, you know what, the Word of God says you better not touch God's anointed. What are they saying? They're untouchable? That they're unaccountable to anything? They have a direct line to God now? The word master there, Lord, sovereign, ruler, that's what it means. The word appears ten times in the New Testament. It always refers to the one who has supreme authority. In four occurrences, it refers to the master of a household or an estate who has full authority over the servants. And here and in five other occurrences, it refers directly to Christ or to God. So it says basically these false teachers are unwilling to yield to Christ or to God. They deny the sovereign lordship of Christ. Now, they're not going to deny it outwardly. They're not going to deny Christ's deity. They're not going to even deny his atonement, his resurrection, or his second coming because, remember, they're disguising themselves. But inwardly, they adamantly refuse to submit to his sovereign rule in their lives. Now we come to an interesting phrase here. And this has caused problems for some. It says, even denying the master, the Lord, who bought them. Who bought them. I mean, it fits perfectly if you understand what Peter's saying here. What's he alluding to? He's alluding to the master of the house. He's alluding to that person who would purchase slaves and put them in charge of various household tasks. That's what he's alluding to. And because they were regarded as the master's personal property, that's how slavery worked, they owed their complete allegiance to him. And so what false teachers do is they maintain that they're part of Christ's household. Oh, yeah, we're part of the church. We're saved. We're, we're, we're Christians. And yet, they deny such professions through their actions because they refuse to become servants under his authority. <coughs> it says there that they were bought <clears throat> to purchase, is the idea, to redeem out of the marketplace. It's the context that's paralleled in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
See, the false teachers of, of Peter's day claimed that Christ was their Redeemer. Yet they refused to accept His sovereign lordship and leadership in their lives. And so they kind of revealed by that refusal that they were enemies of biblical Christ truth. Now the problem you get here theologically is that, well, wait a minute, it says even denying the master who bought them. Some say, well, that must mean that Christ actually purchased the redemption of everybody. These are false teachers, right? That's who he's talking about. And yet it says the master who bought them. So if you take this out of the illustration that Peter's drawing and where he's calling the master of the house and you apply it to salvation, then you can very easily conclude, well, wait a minute. I guess it's true that God loves everybody. God wants everybody to be saved. So, therefore, Christ died for everyone. So, therefore, everybody's going to be saved. That's what some people believe. Universalism. That's not what this is teaching. And this is where you get into some interesting theology. And basically, it comes down to the point of view of do you believe that his death was a potential sacrifice or atonement and it doesn't become an actual atonement until the sinner repents and believes the gospel? In other words, the people that Christ died for, if Christ died for everybody, well, clearly everybody's not going to be saved. And so what they do is they say, well, no, it's, it's a potential salvation. And so that potential salvation is activated and becomes actual when the person who gets saved chooses to get saved. Well, how does, what are the ramifications of that? Well, in evangelism, that would mean, according to that view, that it's our job to go out and to convince sinners to receive what has already been done for them. We have to talk them in to being convinced that they have salvation. And if we can be good enough and are convincing, then they will realize that, well, I can be saved and I'll get saved. And and I'll, I'll choose God, sure. So we can lead them through a sinner's prayer or we can lead them in a prayer and and then we can sit, tell them, yeah, since you confess Jesus as Lord, now you're saved. Praise the Lord. You've got to be careful. That teaching would say all can believe and be saved if they will. Because no one is excluded from the atonement. The atonement meaning the purchasing payment of sin. And in that view, if you take it to its logical conclusion, it has hell full of people who Christ purchased, but they were unwilling to believe. 
I don't know about you, but I don't feel comfortable with that. I know this is kind of deep stuff, but it's important, I think, that we take some time and go through this. If that's the truth, then the lake of fire is filled with those damn people whose sin Christ fully atoned for because he atoned for everybody. It just doesn't become actual until they choose Christ. And heaven, on the other hand, will be populated by people who had the same atonement provided for them. But they are there because they chose God. They chose Christ. They received it. The problem is Christ in this view, he died on the cross for the damned in hell, the same he did for the redeemed in heaven. The only difference between the Redeemer's fate and that of the damned is the sinner's choice. That's what they would teach. So in the end, they say the Lord Jesus Christ died to make salvation possible, but not actual. He did not absolutely purchase salvation for anyone. He only removed, they would say, the barrier for everyone which merely makes salvation potential, not actual. And the sinner ultimately determines the nature of the atonement and its application in what he does, not in what God has done. According to that understanding, when Jesus hung on the cross, he shouldn't have said, it is finished. He should have said, it is stated. (laughs) Because it's not finished until you choose me. That's not what he said. He said it is finished. Now, those are some difficult things to understand. I understand that. But it comes down to basically the misunderstanding of two very important biblical teachings. And that is this, the doctrine of absolute inability called total depravity and the doctrine of the atonement itself. The doctrine of inability or the doctrine of total depravity says this, that all people are dead in their trespasses and sin. Look it up, Ephesians 2.1. They're also alienated from the life of God, Romans 1.21-22. They're also doing only evil from terminally deceitful hearts, Jeremiah 17.9. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that we are incapable of understanding the things of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that we're blinded by our love for sin, and further, we're even blinded by Satan himself. And then in Romans 3.10-23, it says that we desire only the will of our father, the devil, and we're unable to seek God. There's none good, none righteous. We're unwilling to repent. So if all those statements are true about us as individuals before a holy God, how in the world is a sinner going to make the right choice to activate the atonement on his behalf? Stop and think about it. I wouldn't put a lot of faith in that. What we teach is that salvation is solely from God. He must give light. He must give us life. He must give us understanding, sight, repentance, faith. 
All that. It all comes from God. Salvation comes to the sinner from God by His grace, by His will, by His power. That's what we call the the doctrine of sovereign election. God determined the extent of the atonement. We don't. For whom did Christ die? He died for all those who would ever believe because they were chosen, called, justified, and granted repentance and faith by the Father. The atonement is limited to those who believe. Those are the elect of God. That's what we are as believers. Any believer who does not believe in the universal salvation knows Christ's atonement is limited. I mean, it's kind of clear. So when you hear the word limited atonement, that's not a bad word. The atonement of Christ is limited. It's limited to those whom he calls, whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Well, shouldn't that affect the way we do? Yeah, that's why we're told to go into all the world and preach the gospel because we don't know who's chosen and who's not, beloved. I mean, that's a, that's a weighty subject. We can finish this next week because of time. But I would forget about the idea of unlimited atonement. That's not what the Bible teaches. God sets the limits of his atonement. And he extends it to those whom he has chosen to believe on his name. And he, the Bible even says that the repentance that we offer God is, is granted to us. So when we go out and we're sharing the gospel message with those that we come across, be careful what you say to them. You want to expose them to the gospel of Christ. You want to expose their sin. You want them to understand that there's a holy God who loves and cares for them. And that Christ did die on a cross. And if they understand the gospel of Christ, and they come to that point where they say, yes, unlike the false teachers, but yes, I want to yield my life under the lordship of Christ. I want to follow him. I'm tired of doing my own thing. I want to follow my Savior. Then clearly they are one of the chosen. And they have put their faith and trust in Christ. But it was granted to them by God. See, that's what makes evangelism such a unique opportunity. You're out there sharing a message that has the power to change the human heart. And that power comes only from God. It doesn't come from the person you're talking to. It doesn't come from you and the message you share with them. There are some people that come to Christ who have never even read a track. God has supernaturally called them into his family. Incredible. But that doesn't negate our responsibility to go out and preach this message to a lost and dying world. Well, we didn't get too far through the outline, but we'll finish that up next week. Because I'm sure that your minds are probably fried like mine, so... We'll finish this up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that 
we can come to this truth and we know that this isn't about our own teachings of this church. It's not about that. We don't have a corner on the truth. We, we basically want to make known your word. We study your word as we have been, as it's been revealed to us through the Bible. And Lord, we take it verse by verse, word by word, and sentence by sentence, and precept by precept, and just try to understand what it means for us. And Lord, it's very clear, I think, in so many ways that we understand that there's some things here that we can apply, that we need to be discerning of anybody who's teaching the Bible. I don't care where it's at, whether it's on TV or behind a pulpit. We need to be like the Bereans to see if the things that they teach are so. And we need to reject any teacher who advocates a lifestyle or doctrine that's clearly contrary to your word. It's good, maybe, to sit down and write out our own understanding, our own doctrinal statement. We need to be wary of any teacher who would use the Bible or pulpit or ministry as a gain to personal wealth. Father, we pray that you would expose these false teachers. And Lord, that you would keep us on the path of truth. Lord, we understand that you do not look lightly on false teachers. And so, Father, we don't want to look lightly on it either, and yet we don't want to be overly critical of people either. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to strike that fine balance, that fine line. Father, we pray that this morning, as we close our service, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would have it revealed to them that they need a Savior. Lord, only you can do that. Only you can activate that faith in their life. Maybe they've been trying all sorts of things. Maybe, maybe they've been trying to be good. The Bible says that we can be good all we want. But if we're trying to use that goodness to earn credit with you, that you don't look at that as goodness. You look at that as filthy rags. Father, we thank you that your Son has provided a way of salvation and it's a faith and grace and love and forgiveness. It's not a way of works. And so, Father, we pray for each individual here this morning that if they have any questions or they have any concerns with maybe what they've heard this morning or questions about their own faith, that you would help them to uh, seek someone out and ask those questions. And for us believers, I pray that we'd be faithful to the task that you've called us to, to reach out to a lost and dying world with this life-changing gospel of Christ, not knowing beforehand who you may have called or who not, but Lord, we just want to be obedient. And Lord, as we're obedient, I know that you will bring across those divine appointments, that you will bring us to those people who are, are ready and willing to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. What an exciting thing that is to see someone come to Christ for the first time. I pray that you would use us in that way. And Father, we just thank you and we, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.